You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. All right, ready to get into God's Word? All right, we're going to be in Psalm 103. hope this is a blessing to you. And um, we're going to read the text as we go along today. But let me say, first of all, as we, as we get started here, that there, there really are, as I see it, in the preaching of the gospel, there's a couple of pitfalls or dangers that can happen as we preach the gospel. Uh, first, we emphasize, obviously, we have to emphasize the uh, confession of sin. It's essential. We have to recognize our desperate state before we can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But the danger in, in seeing everyone as a sinner, we're born in sin, the world is affected by sin, in preaching that message, we can then see life only in terms of what's wrong with the world. You see how that might happen? We emphasize sin so much, the world is in such a bad place, and we emphasize just what's wrong with the world. And second, related to it, when we preach the gospel, we can get to this place where we focus so intently on heaven, which is such an awesome thing to think about, isn't it? I mean, I'm so glad to be here with you this morning, but I'd rather be in heaven. You get that? And don't we all agree with that? We'd just rather be there, as awesome as, as this is. Uh, but we focus so intently on heaven, this is the second pitfall, that we forget that God has blessed us with so much that's good in this life. God has given us so many great things. And yes, there are so many things that we could lament in this life, because life is hard and no one's denying that. But there are, also, uh, there are also a great many good things that God has given us that we should enjoy, that we should thank Him for things that are, in the right sense of the word, praiseworthy things in our lives. Now, I say all of that because Psalm 103 takes us to that place where we can avoid those two pitfalls. It's such a great psalm, and I know it's the favorite of so many, but it takes us to the place of exalting Him for what's good, what's great, what's awesome in our lives. And I hope you can see all the good things that God has done for you. I hope you woke up this morning thinking about all the great things that God has done for you, all the great things that God has given to you. I hope that's the place that you're in. But if you're struggling with that, then let this psalm be a reminder of these things with its strong exhortation to, and here's the three most important words in this message, the strong exhortation to exalt the Lord. That's the whole thing today. That's the nail we're going to drive. Exalt the Lord. We want to be about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And are you doing that? Are you, would you say about your life that I'm into that? I'm into the exaltation of the Lord in every way that that's possible. And um, in a message that's about exalting the Lord, we have front-loaded the message. We've just done two songs, and so we've left ourselves a substantive amount of time at the end of the message to respond to the Lord in the appropriate way. Because in a message about exalting the Lord, it would be appropriate to respond by... Okay, I'll give you another run at it. So, in a message about exalting the Lord, it would be appropriate to respond by... Exalting the Lord, exactly. And so that's what we're going to do um, at the end of the message. We've uh, left some time to sing and to praise Him and to worship Him in an appropriate way. Again, we're going to read the text as we go today, but would you allow me to pray before we uh, get into God's Word? 
Father, thank you again for this opportunity. We uh, don't want to take this for granted that we would be able to gather in your name and in this place. Uh, so, Father, we uh, thank you. And we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. I can't preach in power, and we together cannot receive the implanted Word of God apart from you. And so we need your Holy Spirit to meet with us and do the divine miracle once again of transforming us. So please, Lord, do it. Change us into the image of Jesus Christ by the hearing of your Word. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen? All right, let's start with this. Exalt Him with all that you are and all that you have. Now let's look at verse 1 to get started. Uh, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Now we're going to break that down a little bit. The word uh, bless, if you're carrying a New International Version, uh, maybe you see the word praise there. I think it's a little bit more than praise. Um, To bless is to exalt or to lift high. And when God blesses you, uh, you are enriched. You are uh, better off than you were uh, before. There's something you didn't have, and now you have it. Uh, Your life is better for having been blessed. And when I wish that upon you, I pray that God would bless you. My desire in saying that to you is that your life would be better than it is right now, that you would have more of something in your life that you don't have right now. And and so I understand the idea of blessing when it's God blessing me or God blessing us. I understand the concept of blessing when I'm trying to bless you or you're trying to bless me. I have more of something because you blessed me or you asked God to bless me. But when I come to the text like this and I read passages like this in the Psalms, I can become a little bit confused about the concept of blessing God. How can I bless God when the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. In what way am I making God's life better? How can the God who has everything and created everything have more? Is God's life in any way being enriched by me blessing Him? And the answer to all of those questions, of course, is no. God cannot have more because He has everything. God's life cannot be enriched because He is supreme, because He is completely perfect in every way. I can't give Him anything more because He has everything. He owns everything. He created everything. Everything is under Him. And so... Anybody else ever wondered about this word? Bless? How do I bless God? Have you ever been confused by it even a little bit? Well, let's understand exactly what's going on here. Uh, when God is blessed, He's not enriched. His life is not made better anyway. To bless the Lord, you could jot some of this down, is to express gratitude. It's to express admiration or adoration. It's an exclamation. This is important. It's an exclamation of what already is and what we're just coming to realize that he's awesome in every way i mean i know god is awesome but i'm expecting that before this life is out i'm going to find out more things about him that makes him even more awesome in in my mind and in my heart and i'll want to bless him again to exclaim what already is In essence, what we're saying when we say bless the Lord is we're saying, you are blessed, O Lord. And you, in fact, are the source of all blessing 
in this world and in my life. John Piper said it this way, to exalt the Lord is to joyfully announce all these good things about God. Okay, I just found this out about you. Now I want to tell everyone else. I want to tell them how blessed you are. Blessed in every way. So we magnify Him, we exalt Him, we recognize His magnificence and His glorious status as King of the universe and the one and only source of all blessings. And when we've got that, when we understand just how blessed He is, just how awesome He is, then we want to see to this worship, this exaltation of Him in a certain way. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So we're going to bring something fairly significant to the table in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We're going to bring our all. And so it's not simply, as we have just done a few minutes ago, it is not simply outward expressions of exaltation because it's with our soul. So it's not simply singing, which we did a few minutes ago. It's not uh, simply a clapping, which we did a few minutes ago. It's not simply hand-raising or shuffling of the feet. I say shuffling of the feet for the Baptists in the crowd who don't like to dance in worship. It, it's, it's not just those physical expressions, uh, but that's important. It's just that that has to follow some other things first. This is praise and worship coming from a deep within, as Psalm 130 uh, verse 1 says, this comes out of the depths of our soul. It's all-encompassing. And so it's, it's physical for sure, but it's also emotional. Notice he says, bless the Lord, oh! You see it? Look into the text. Oh, my soul. Do you want to try that? Bless the Lord, Saturday night did that way better. <laughs> Bless the Lord. Oh. That was better. Oh, my soul. Now, for the grammar freaks in the crowd, this is an interjection. That's the part of speech that it is, the word oh. It's an interjection. And it expresses strong, intense emotion. And so the psalmist has built into the psalm into this poem, into this song of praise. He's built in the emotion. We're to be worshiping God and expressing ourselves to Him in an emotive way. And so, physical, emotional. How about our minds? It's well thought out. The mind is engaged. The psalm is rich in content, it's well-structured, it's intentional in every way. I, um, I know this to be true, I, when I was in high school, and I, I think many of you would agree with this, in English class in high school, the worst unit, bar none, the worst four to six weeks of the semester was the poetry unit. Is that not true? No one gets the poetry unit. There's three kids in every class that understand the poetry, and no one else gets it, and we just hope to be able to pass the test on poetry. That's it. There's words we don't get. There's words that no one ever uses. There's imagery. Where did he get that? I don't understand it. We just hope to survive the poetry unit. 
But here's the thing, even though I don't understand poetry, even though I don't get it, I do understand this. The poet was very intentional in what they were writing. That this wasn't just like in one pass, scratched out on a napkin while they were drinking a coffee. I mean, this, you think about the meter and the structure and the imagery that had to be thought through. You think for every word that's in the poem, there's 10 to 12 words that hit the cutting room floor. Even though I don't get it, I understand the poet labored over the poem so that they would be able to express their heart and what they were thinking and what was on their mind, communicate a message to those three kids that understood it in class. It's very intentional. The mind was very engaged. And the psalmist here is thinking through the exaltation of God and choosing the words well. And then, of course, physical, emotional, intellectual mind, it's also an act of a person's will. You, you want to do this. I mean, I, I would just hope that there's no one here today that's here against their will. I hope you got up this morning and you were like, we get to go to church today. I hope you want to be here. I hope no one's forced and no one's coerced. I hope you're not here because you had nothing else to do or because you missed last night's service or because this is a tradition or because someone guilted you into it and you feel like you're just checking a checkbox. I hope it's not that for anyone here, because if we're truly going to exalt the Lord in the way that God would prescribe, in the way the psalmist is encouraging us, then we have to want to be here. And of all the places we could be, the long list of options that you had on a Sunday morning, that, that they're not even a consideration. This is number one, by far, the place I want to be. That is an act of the will, and we have to get there if we're truly going to exalt the Lord with all that we are and with all that we have. Now, I get as I say all of that, this all-encompassing exaltation of the Lord, that there are always people who chafe a little bit at some of this. And, and the, the cool thing about being part of Harvest Bible Chapels is that we have people here from so many different religious and faith traditions and people from none. And, and it's always a, a bit of a risk to say what I'm going to say next, but I'm leaving town this afternoon, so it's no big deal. <laughs> I got my own church. They love me, so it's fine. So, um, you know, but there are some of us here who have come from you know, maybe uh, brethren backgrounds or, or Baptist backgrounds or reform backgrounds where, you know, we were told to just uh, stand still during worship and, and not show very much affect at all or emotions were, were dangerous and you shouldn't show them. And, and I think the sense that I have from my reading of the Scripture and the understanding of how God made us is that He made us to be a mode of being. And that we need to express ourselves in pretty tangible ways to Him, uh, not to be swept up by emotion, not to get just caught up in a group experience or given to peer pressure, but to genuinely worship, as the psalmist says here, with all, all that is within me. Isn't that what the text says? Isn't that what the text says? All that is within me. So I know we have it in us because I have some evidence here that we have it in us. Let's watch the video. 
Nashville Predators fans. Now, when I first preached this message back at our own church, uh, they were still in it. And uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins won the Stanley Cup, and the Nashville Predator fans weren't as happy as they were here. But the thing that's remarkable to me is this is Nashville, and it's hockey. Tennessee, hockey. It just doesn't mesh for me. And yet, 19,000 screaming fans inside their arena, and listen, 50,000, 50,000 fans on the streets outside the arena for a hockey team in Tennessee. <laughs> All that is within me, cheer for the Nashville Predators. Or, or how about this picture? After 108 years, the Chicago Cubs finally won the World Series. Hundreds of thousands of people went to Grant Park to celebrate the World Series win. The city of Chicago pretty much shut down for the parade. My son actually is a student at Moody Bible Institute. He's in this picture. I think you, he's uh, back left. <laughs> I think. But he is there. Remarkable feat and the enthusiasm the people showed all that is within me celebrate the World Series win. How about uh, this group uh, here? These are, these are believers. I'm a little ashamed that I know that word. These are devotees of Justin Bieber. They are believers. You with me now? Okay. Yeah, I know, it's a little disgusting. <laughs> now, for my generation, by the way, if you have a little bit more gray hair, you might remember the early 60s and the Beatles coming over and the screaming fans when they were on the Ed Sullivan show. And, and it's the same thing. Every generation has its you know, craze for the current rock stars, the current musicians, pop stars, and, and all that is within me. Can you see it in them? All that is within me. Scream for Justin Bieber. How about this crowd? This is in London, England. Do you know what they're waiting for? Just a throng of people. They're just waiting for what? The announcement of the birth of the prince, Prince George. Do you think any of them are going to get to see the baby? No, they are not. They're going to stand there and someone's going to say he was born and then they're all going to go home. <laughs> no event, no accolades, no, just, you could have found out on Twitter, in your living room. <laughs> the devotion is obvious, all that is within me, celebrate the birth of the prince. How about uh, this lady, she's 91 years old, and she is literally a tree hugger. She's chained to a tree because she wants to save the tree. All that is within me, save the trees. Or, or this group of people, Black Friday. <laughs> All that is within me, buy a flat screen? You see where this is going? And then on a more serious note, what does it take inside of a person? This past June was again... Uh, the day we remembered the D-Day invasions, World War II, 1944, June the 6th. What does it take for a person to put on a uniform to bear arms? 
to go in the face of enemy fire and to take a beach. All that is within me, storm the beach. You see, we have it in us because God put it in us. He wants us to bring all that we are to the worship of His great name. This has to be a carefully considered decision. And so the entirety of our being needs to be engaged in it, engaged in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And would that describe your exaltation of Christ? Is that what you're bringing to the table? And if not, what could you do to change that? In fact, in your notes, let's uh, make a little chart that we could work on together. Uh, look just like this, the four words that we've talked about. Put some check boxes uh, to the left, some blank lines to the right. And let's think through each of these and some ways that maybe we could apply this a little more readily in our lives. I will exalt the Lord with my mind. How are you doing with that? Maybe you're saying, you know what, I'm fully engaged intellectually in the understanding of Jesus Christ. This isn't hard for me. But maybe you're saying, you know what, I could think about this a little bit more. Maybe it's as easy as, I'm not reading my Bible as regularly as I should, and I need to get on that program and read the Word of God. Maybe it's more about the study of the Word. I read it, but I don't always understand it. And maybe it's as simple as buying a study Bible and reading some notes that go along with it, or getting in a study and engaging your mind a little bit more. Maybe for some it even means going to Bible college or seminary and taking courses and increasing the depth of knowledge you have about the Word of God. Maybe it's memorization of the text. Maybe it's meditating on the text. You know, I'm on a reading program. I got four chapters a day I have to read, and I get through it, and I read the Bible in a year, but I haven't got a clue what I read. And it hasn't changed me. The reading program's not going to do you any good unless you're stopping at times to meditate on and think about and have the Word penetrate your heart and mind. So if you're doing well there, give yourself a check mark. If you believe there's some growth there, just say, you know what? I'm going to increase my exaltation of God yeah, with regard to my mind by doing this. How about the will? Again, you shouldn't be forced to be here. You've got to want this. You've got to want to be here and spend time with God. There's got to be a welling up inside of you and a reordering of priorities to say, this is the thing I want to do. I want to be with God's people. I'm going to make this a priority in my life. If you're doing well there and that's the pattern of your life. Give yourself a check mark. And if not, something on the line that's going to help you get to that place. I will exalt the Lord with my emotions. You know, I think a lot of us, this is, this is the sticking point for some because they're going to hide behind that's just not my temperament, excuse number one, or that's not my tradition, excuse number two. And I want you to imagine for a second now, on the last day, you're standing before the Lord and He's asking you a question. Why is it you never really expressed yourself very much in worship? And you're going to say to Him, that just wasn't my tradition, Lord. That wasn't my temperament. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how that's going to play. I have a friend who's an accountability partner of mine, has been for a long, long time, and one of the questions he asks me is, um, have there been tears lately? And uh, 
he, he just knows, and, and I have sensed this because over the years that he's asked me this question, I come back to it even when he doesn't ask me the question. In my personal times with the Lord, am I so struck by the beauty and the awesomeness and the things I'm learning about who he is that in my personal times, alone in my study, that my Bible becomes tear-stained just thinking about it or thinking about my own depravity and how I fail the Lord. Have there been tears? Are tears staining my prayer journal? And I get concerned when I go through any period of time when that hasn't happened. And I'm not in awe of the Lord. Emotions, what could you do there to improve that? It's not just tears, but it's also laughter. Is there joy in what God is doing? Do you express that joy? Is there anger at injustice? We're talking about the full range of emotions coming into play in the exaltation of God. And then uh, finally this, I will exalt the Lord with my body, uh, clapping hands, hands raised, singing, feet moving, not really talking about dancing in the aisles, but at least in some way expressing it. And, and I'll say this, that the, the Scripture does not command the clapping of hands, it does not command the lifting of hands. But those are there as examples, as exhortations to do it. And maybe you would just say, you know, I'd love to lift my hands, but I just can't get there. And you could just start with training wheels. That's where everyone starts, just down here. No one else needs to see it. Just training wheels. And then you can just practice a little bit, you know, over the weeks. Just set some targets and you'll be fine. <laughs> Exalt Him with all that you are and all that you have. You feel like you got that first point? Do you need me to go over it again? You feel like you got it? Ready for point two? All right, here we go. Here's the, here's the rationale now for blessing Him. Um, exalt Him for all that He is and all that He's done. And I think we could add to this all that He's doing. All that He is and all that He's done. Uh, let's read a few more verses. I'm not going to take as long on the rest of this. And all God's people said amen. So bless... Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with, the steadfast, with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So notice again, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And then he adds, forget not all his benefits. And then he lists these benefits. And so let's build a list of God's seven benefits. And at the end of this, just realize how much you ought to be exalting him for these benefits that he puts into your life. Number one, he forgives me. That's a wonderful benefit, isn't it? Verse three says, who forgives all your iniquity. We had this severed relationship with God as a result of being born in sin, of being sinners ourselves, of committing sin. We had no way to repair that relationship. No amount of good works is going to get it done or moral living. And God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to sever that, uh, to, to repair that severed relationship, to be the atoning sacrifice to cover our sins uh, by His own blood. And as a result of all of that, look what it says. He forgives all your iniquity. It's remarkable that he does that. 
And uh, if there were no other benefits, if this was the only one we got, it would be enough, don't you think? It would be enough because that's all I need. I just need my sins forgiven and know I'm going to be in eternity with the Lord. All these other ones are like bonuses. So he forgives me. So awesome. Secondly, he heals me. Verse 3, who heals all your diseases. Now, I, I know the objection here from some people that you're saying, well, he doesn't heal all diseases because I still have mine. I still have my infirmity. Uh, this isn't going away. I have a lifetime affliction that I'm dealing with. I've prayed to the Lord many times. It's not going away. So what's with this? He heals all your diseases. And of course, we have to get God's frame of reference on this. We have to have God's timing on this, don't we? Because our, our timing is so limited. Our view of things is so limited. And God has this eternal view and His plan and His will that He's working out. And do we not believe that with time in eternity, by time we get there, God will have healed all our diseases? Amen? Amen. He will have. Now, along the way, sometimes He surprises us and allows a healing here and now. A miracle happens, and someone overcomes some affliction, and that's awesome when He does it, but He does eventually, in eternity, heal all of our diseases. That's a great benefit. I'm looking forward to having a perfected body and being with Him forever. How about three? He protects me. Who redeems, verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit. I think we all kind of have those stories where we prayed for God to um, protect us, to watch over us, and then we have a story because we were doing a thing and then another thing happened and we were in a challenging spot and, and God watched over us and God protected us and we can look back and say, man, God protected us there. How many people have a story like that where God just protected them in some way? We know those stories. But I feel like when we get to heaven and we're like reviewing the tape of our lives and kind of looking back on everything, we're going to see like hundreds of times, if not thousands of times, when God sent His holy angels to guard us or guard our children or guard our grandchildren and to keep us safe from some harm that was coming our way. I believe God's doing that every minute of the day for us. and He protects us in the midst of the pit, going into the pit, getting out of the pit. God is there for us. He protects us. Fourth, he, he esteems me. Look at verse 4, the latter part there, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. See, this, this, is an, uh, this is an issue of identity. And so many people struggle right here with this, who am I and does my past define me and does my present define me? And these decisions I made at one time in a life, they seem to define me and, and that's what my identity gets on. And we miss the fact that forget about Prince George being born, this room is filled with princes and princesses of the King of Kings. That's who we are. That's our identity. Not past decisions, not events that have befallen us, not our current circumstances. Our identity is in the Lord. He esteems me. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. Those are words that come right out of His covenant with His people. It's awesome that that's our identity. What a great benefit that is. How about uh, this next one, number five, He provides for me. 
Verse 5 uh, says, He satisfies you with good. And uh, we could start the list. Uh, thank you for the homes we live in and the cars we drive and the families we have and the marriages that we're in, the grandchildren you've blessed us with. Thank you for the money that's in the bank and the food that's in the pantry and the clothes that are in the closet. Thank you for the friends that I have and the church I can come to and the community I live in and the police that protect us. Thank you for the government who's watching over us and protecting our borders. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That just starts the list. It's, it's a 10,000-item list of things that God has done to provide for us. He satisfies us with good things. Even in a sin-sickened world, He satisfies His children with good things. Number six, He strengthens me. Verse 5 continues, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And um, I need that strengthening in the, in the face of just day-to-day -day life. I need that strength. I, I need His strength to make wise decisions, to make moral choices. I need His strength to represent Him well in this world, to witness of His love to those who don't know Him. I need that strength every day, and He promises it to me. It's one of the benefits of exalting the Lord with my life. And seven, he vindicates me. Verse six, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And if you have suffered wrong, if you are being oppressed or persecuted in some way, you don't need to argue, you don't need to press your case. Truth and time walk hand in hand. And if your cause is righteous, if the decisions you have made are in alignment with God's will and consistent with His Word, God will vindicate you. God will make all things right. We need only trust Him. It's one of the benefits that He gives to us. And having articulated these seven benefits, wouldn't you agree that these are pretty awesome and we ought to exalt Him for these things? God gives these to us. Well, then he goes into an example to illustrate it in verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses. In other words, Moses had the seven benefits. His acts to the people of Israel. Israel had the seven benefits. And saying all of this in our lives, in Moses' life, in Israel's life, Harvest Oakville has these benefits. You as a follower of Christ have these benefits. Your family, if it is in Christ, has these benefits. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God does all of this as an act of mercy and an act of grace. Maybe you wonder about the difference between these two words. And mercy is not getting what I do deserve. What I deserve, because I'm a sinner, I deserve eternal separation from God. I certainly don't deserve these seven benefits. I deserve hell, separated from Him for all eternity. That's what I do deserve. But God in His mercy is not giving me what I do deserve. And His grace, then, is just the opposite. It's getting what I do not deserve. And we've already built the list of all the things I don't deserve. I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve healing. I don't deserve protection or his esteem or his provision or his strength or his vindication. I don't deserve any of that. But by his grace, he gives me these things. God's so good to us. 
in every way. And all of it, notice verse 8, because of His steadfast love for us. This is the, the Hebrew word is the chesed of God, the covenant faithfulness of God toward us. He said He'd bless us. He said He'd bless us. And He did, and He does, and He will. The promise is sure simply because He said it. Not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done. And He goes on to describe this mercy and grace even more in verses 9 through 12. He will not always try, chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Amen for that. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. You see both mercy and grace in those two verses. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove his transgress our transgressions from us. See, He's angry about our sin, but that's not going to last forever. His justice demands a price, but in Jesus Christ, the price was actually paid. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He dealt with Jesus according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities because Jesus paid the price for our iniquities. Then a further affirmation of the covenant in verse 11, a promise to never bring our sins up against us again in verse 12. It's His nature to forgive. God's not going to forget our sins, obviously, but He chooses not to bring them up against us again. Now, if God chooses not to bring up your sins against you again, why do you keep bringing them up against you again and again and again? And if God chooses not to bring up your spouse's sins against him or her again, why do you keep bringing them up against him or her again and again and again. How could we do less than what the Lord is willing to do? It's His nature to forgive. It should be our nature to forgive. As we work through this list and see all of this, as we see the benefits that He's given to us by mercy and by grace according to His steadfast love, could I just ask you, are you enjoying that grace and mercy? And are you exalting the Lord as you ought to? for all that He is and all that He's done. We're not quite done with that whole idea because you also need to notice this uh, finally. Exalt Him for loving you deeply and holding you fast. This, this, might, be, this might be the point that someone here needs to hear. Because you're just in a place where you're wondering if God really loves you and if He's really there for you. And the assurance that we get here is a strong affirmation of that. Verse 13, as it gets really tender right now, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. So we have this image of a father and children and He's showing compassion to them and God wants us to hear that this is about Him and us. 
that He's so prepared to pour out His love and compassion on us. But it's on those who, notice in the verse, that's extended to those who fear Him, to those who worship Him, those who exalt Him, those who have this reverential awe of who He is. And so this is 100%, this psalm is 100% targeted at those who are believers, who are the followers of the Lord. So don't expect these benefits if you haven't yet bowed your knee and surrendered your life to follow Jesus. Don't expect that you would be able to muster up enough of whatever you think you need to receive these benefits and to exalt the Lord on your own. Don't think that you could fake this. You might be able to fool a few people around you, but you're never going to fool the Lord because He knows our hearts. If you don't genuinely love Him and if you haven't genuinely committed your life to follow Him, He knows. But if you do that, you're going to get these rock-solid assurances from the Lord. These benefits are going to come your way and you're going to know that He loves you deeply and that He's holding you fast. Look at verses 14 through 16. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. We're weak. We're fragile. We're vulnerable. We're mortal beings. God says, I know how hard it is. And I love you. And I'm holding you in the midst of it. I, I think about the span of my life, uh, just a little more than five decades, and I think about how medical science has just advanced so much. New procedures and, and, and new drugs that treat certain ailments and the level of health that, that we get and the quality of life. And I think also over those five decades that the life expectancy actually hasn't gone up that much in the Western world. And in fact, in some cases, we're now creating the bugs that are killing us. In the developing world, life expectancies haven't gone up at all because we're weak, we're frail, we're vulnerable, we're mortal. God knows our frame. We're but dust. I think about safety issues. We think about how our police and our armed forces protect us. That when the criminals or the terrorists do something, they find a way to, to foil those plans, to, to, to stop the hurt and harm that comes our way. And as soon as we stop one way that the criminals come after us, the criminals find a new way. As soon as we plug one hole with regard to terrorists, they find a new way to inflict their terror on us. As much as we would like to be protected, we're weak and we're frail and we're vulnerable and we're mortal. And God knows our frame. He knows we're dust. And for the third time in the psalm, He reminds us about the covenant. Remember the promise I made, God is saying? Verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. I'm here for you. I love you. I'm holding you. Nothing's going to change that. 
But again, it's for those who fear Him. For those who have committed their way to Him, who are part of His covenant community. And so if you want to know that you're loved in this way, if you want to know that God is there for you and holding you in the midst of whatever weakness and frailty and vulnerability and mortal issue that you're facing, then in this very moment right now, if you have never done this, you need to commit your life to Jesus Christ. Don't leave here today without doing that. Don't wait till the end of the service right now saying, God, I'm in. I want your benefits. I want your love. I want to be your son or your daughter. Pledge your life to follow him. I mean, obviously, this psalm is about the believers upping their game with regard to the exaltation of Christ, but it's also in many ways an invitation to unbelievers to come and join in and sign on with what God is doing here. Well, the grand conclusion comes as the psalmist busts out in praise and worship in the last few verses. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Verse 20, Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is an all-out appeal for all creation. The angelic hosts, the, the human beings that He made, the creation itself, the cosmos itself, to praise Him, to exalt Him. There's a threefold structure here of praise and worship to the Lord. Bernard Anderson said it this way, it is God's faithfulness that endows the individual's life, the history of the people, and the whole cosmos with ultimate meaning. And there has been an appeal throughout this psalm for the individual to exalt Him, for the church to exalt Him, and for the cosmos to join in the exaltation of God. And I pray that we would all get there. One way or another, God will be worshipped and exalted. And I couldn't help but read this psalm and then also think to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. And in the story, this is the triumphal entry of, of Christ, of Jesus, into Jerusalem, and you'll remember that the crowds were all there. It was Palm Sunday, and they had the palms, and they're waving them, and they're laying them down in front of them, and Jesus is riding in on the donkey, which was the way that the kings entered Jerusalem. And as He's entering in, the people are shouting, Hosanna! They're praising Jesus, and they're exalting Him as the Messiah. And for every great gospel story where people are celebrating, there's always a Pharisee there to ruin the party. And this Pharisee, I just imagine him kind of walking into the midst of the crowd and getting alongside the donkey and walking along as the donkey is walking and saying to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said to him, if these do not praise me, do you remember this? The very stones, the rocks will cry out. And so we face a decision right now. We've heard the Word of God. We can respond or not respond. We can remain silent. We can hold back. 
or we can choose to worship. The last line of the psalm, bless the Lord, O my soul. The first person singular pronoun. Every individual in this room now stands before the Lord to make a decision. Will I or will I not praise Him? Will I or will I not exalt Him? Will I or will I not bless Him with all that is within me?